Our scripture lesson tonight comes from Leviticus chapter 8. If you, if you came out of the last few weeks on the various offerings wondering, so how do they all fit together? Well, it's almost as though God was like, you know, if you want to understand how it all fits together, I'll give you chapter 8. So hear now the word of the Lord from Leviticus chapter 8. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the, bas- the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons, and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him, and tied the sash around his waist, and clothed him with the robe, and put the ephod on him, and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it, and Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bull and its skin and its flesh and its dung he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces and the fat. He washed the entrails and the legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat, and the fat tail, and all the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. 
It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in the basket of ordination off, of, uh, the basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, and what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. And you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. This is the word of the Lord. As, as we've seen, Leviticus is really about two things. There's how you can come before God through the offerings, which is what we've been seeing so far, and then it'll turn to how you can live before God as his holy people. Uh, you might say that Leviticus is all about justification and sanctification. Chapters 1 through 7 have laid out the, the various offerings that God commanded, and now we hear how the priests were ordained. The offerings were very important. God had said, make sure that you do exactly as I've told you. And so also was the mediator who offered them. Uh, Israel's priesthood will be hereditary, given that the promises of God revolved around the promised seed, the son who would come and deliver his people. There was a fittingness to the idea in the Old Testament that the priesthood would pass from father to son. Uh, of course, that's... That was the anticipatory picture, of course, as the book of Hebrews will say, that Christ himself will participate in the priesthood of Melchizedek, the order of Melchizedek, which is an order of one. There is a uniqueness to Christ's priesthood, so that, well, on the one hand, these Levitical pictures show forth lots of things about Christ, as we've been suggesting. Not only, not only can you not really understand Leviticus without understanding Christ, you also can't really understand Christ without understanding Leviticus. The more you understand about the offerings, the more you realize, oh, when Paul says sin offering, there are some really specific things about what a sin offering is, as, and we'll see part of that tonight. There are some really specific things about what a sin offering is that you need to understand for, who, for what Jesus has done. There's some really specific things about a peace offering that are important for understanding what Jesus has done. Now, our, our text is, is punctuated with the refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, you, we could just go over to Exodus 29, and where, where God had laid out in great detail, it's pretty much the whole chapter, is taken up with describing the ritual that Moses is supposed to go through with Aaron and his sons. And Leviticus 8 is pretty much a repeat of Exodus 29, where Moses does exactly what the Lord commanded, and that's why you have this refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses. Actually, this, this week, as I was, I've, I've, I've noticed as I've looked at my old Leviticus series that I'm like, wow, the last time I preached through Leviticus, I really didn't understand this very well, but 
my son's uh, Robert was like, but Dad, you've preached this before. And I'm like, really, I have? Oh, right, when I preached from Exodus. So yeah, the last time I preached from Leviticus, I didn't get this. But when I preached through Exodus, so actually I realized, oh, I, I actually have said this before. But so Moses is, is, starts by gathering the whole assembly at the tent of meeting. And he says, you know, this is what the Lord says should be done. If you want to know where did the Lord say that, go back and read Exodus 29. Because that's where the Lord had said, here's what you're supposed to do. And as Israel gathers, the, the congregation will witness the consecration of those who will represent them as they bring the offerings of the altar. Who are the priests? Who are the mediators who will intercede for them? Who will, who will help them to deal with their sin and who will bring them near to God? And there are two parts to this consecration. There's the preparing of the priests for the consecration, and then the various offerings related to their consecration. And the first part of the service consists of preparing the priests. And it starts with them being washed. Verse 6. Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Now, in one sense, this is pretty self-explanatory. The priests must be cleansed. Throughout their priestly ministry, they will have to wash their hands and feet when they come near the altars so that they may not die, as Exodus 30 says. Here, however, the washing seems to be more thorough. Only at the ordination of the priests and for the high priest on the Day of Atonement was this more thorough washing required. But also note that this is to be a public washing. This is not simply done in advance in a corner. Rather, it's part of the whole ritual of priestly consecration. And actually, you should be hearing echoes of what Peter says in John 13 when he says, Don't just wash my feet, Lord. Wash all of me. And Jesus replies that Peter has already been cleansed. He just needs to have his feet washed. What's Jesus saying? Well, in the same way that the priest would only be thoroughly washed at the beginning of his priestly ministry, and then he could go about his ordinary ministry with just washing his hands and feet, in the same way, Jesus is saying, Peter, you've been baptized. Your baptism is your priestly consecration. Though, though as he says immediately thereafter, not every one of you is clean, since he knew who was to betray him. But still, your baptism is your priestly consecration. Or, as Paul will say, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ? And if he is the great high priest and we have put on Christ, then we are sharing in his priestly office. Well, second, the priest was then clothed in verses 7 through 9. And here it describes Aaron's clothes, which... Exodus 28 had described in great detail. His undergarment was a tunic that extended to the knees, tied with a sash, and above that he wore a tricolor robe woven in one piece, adorned with pomegranates and golden bells. Then came the ephod, a, a shoulder garment which covered the breast and back to the waist, and finally the breastpiece held in place by two shoulder pieces like collars. And this contained 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then on his head, the high priest wore a turban which contained a plate reading holiness to the Lord. The, the priestly garments of Aaron reflected the glory of the Lord. The, the holy priest must be clean, he had to be washed, but then also dressed in holy garments. 
And here there are lots of echoes and you think about what Paul says in Colossians 3 about putting on compassion, meekness, humility, putting on Christ and his holy garments. And then next the priest was anointed. Uh, the oil of anointing was described in Exodus 30. It consisted of olive oil mixed with myrrh, cinnamon, cane, and cassia. This holy anointing oil was now sprinkled on the tabernacle, on the altar, and on the high priest. The tabernacle is holy because it was the dwelling place of God where God meets with his people. The altar was holy because it was the place where the holy sacrifices were offered. And the high priest was holy because he was the mediator between God and his people. The, the outward things of the Levitical priesthood were, were given as patterns of the inward things that should characterize the people of God. This, this is something the, that many have noted throughout the centuries that, hmm, it's, it's worth noting that the, the, the outward characteristics that are to describe Aaron and the priesthood are actually very much in parallel with the inward characteristics that Paul will give for what the, the elder or deacon, what those, qualifi those qualifications kind of map onto each other in interesting ways. Uh, our problem, of course, is that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as Israel found, their priests were no better than the rest of us. Yeah, consider Aaron himself. If, if, if you're looking for an example of, of a, a holy man who is dedicated to following God and obeys God and everything he does, you wouldn't pick Aaron. Aaron was the one who had led in making a golden calf just a few months ago. Just a few months ago, months ago God had revealed from Sinai ten commandments. And, and the second one was, you shall make no graven images. And just like within a few weeks, Aaron's making a graven image of a golden calf and saying, Behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And this is the guy that Moses is now consecrating to be high priest. It's not because Aaron was the most holy person in the congregation. It was because God called him. His holiness comes from God, not from himself. Aaron was singled out as having been chosen by the Lord. He was anointed with the holy anointing oil, which was reserved for the anointing of the high priest. Now, in the New Testament, the, this consecration of the priests is connected with our baptism. And you see this first in the baptism of Jesus, where Jesus is washed with water by John, who, who was John's father? Zechariah, a priest. What does that make John? A priest. So, John is a priest who consecrates Jesus in at least the first step of the washing with water. And then Jesus offered himself as the atoning sacrifice, the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering, which then leads to our consecration as a holy priesthood in him. In, in Hebrews 10, in the context of, of teaching that the new covenant brings about a new priesthood, Verse 22 of Hebrews 10 calls us to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
We are consecrated as priests in Jesus Christ, just as the Old Testament priests entered their service through water and blood, so also the New Testament priesthood, the holy people of God, enter our service through water and blood as well, that we are born again through water and blood, as, as Jesus says in John 3. The various offerings then take up the main part of the ritual of consecration. There's a bull for the sin offering, and of course, again, if you know the story of Aaron, why, why was it a bull? Well, here's the guy who made the golden calf, and so what's the sin offering going to be? A bull. There's also the, the ram for the burnt offering, or ascension offering, and another ram for the ordination offering, which, as we'll see, most closely resembles the peace offering, except the only worshippers here are the priests. Now, normally, as we, as, we've, as we saw in chapters 1 through 7, the burnt offering, or the ascension offering, is the foundation for all other offerings. But here, for the ordination and the consecration of the priests, we have to start with a sin offering. Why? Well, there's nobody worthy to bring a burnt offering. How can you ascend the hill of the Lord when there is no one worthy to enter his presence? The, the, when we talked about the sin offerings a couple weeks ago, we saw that the, for the sin offering for the priest, that had to be offered prior to his bringing a burnt offering. And so not surprisingly, that's what we see here in chapter 8. Because God provides a way when there is no way. And so Moses brings the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering. As, as we've seen, laying hands on the head of the animal sets it apart to be my representative. In the case of the sin offering, the, 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 the animal takes my sin and because this animal is now contaminated by my sin, it cannot be burned on the altar. It has to be taken outside the camp because the, the sin offering takes the sin of the priest or the sin of the people. And, and for, the, for the sin offering for the priest or the sin offering for the whole congregation, that animal has to be taken outside the camp. And then the blood of the sin offering is placed on the altar, purifying the altar, consecrating the altar to make atonement for it. The altar must be consecrated. The altar must be set apart for the holy work that it must do. Why? Well, because the altar is the place where the Lord's food offerings will be made. This is where the burnt offerings will ascend in the smoke in our place. So before you offer anything on this altar... It must be purified with blood. Hebrews 9.22 says that it, in the Old Testament, almost everything was purified with blood. The priests must be purified before they can offer sacrifices for others. So also the altar must bear the sign of the blood of the covenant before it is fit for the work of atonement. That's why the sin offering cannot be burned on the altar. So just imagine the moment... We've got to get this, okay, we've slaughtered the sin offering, and then Moses says, oh, hang on guys, I'll be back in an hour, because he's got to burn the sin offering outside the camp, which means, you know, they've, they've slaughtered the animal, they've cut it up in pieces, and now, now, it's possible that Moses sort of says, hey, this, you know, the bonfire's ready, go t take it out there. It's 
possible Moses stays behind, but it does say he, so it's possible also that Moses took, went, went, they went outside the camp, it's going to take a little while to walk out there carrying all the pieces of, the, of a bull, and then burning the animal outside and then coming back. But as we saw before, the, the sin offering for a priest, or a sin offering for the whole community, must be burned outside the camp. Because the sin of the priest, the sin of the community, cannot remain inside the camp. It has to be taken outside. That's why Hebrews will point out that as Jesus suffered outside the camp because he was the sin offering in order to sanctify the people through his own blood, so also Hebrews says, therefore let us go outside the camp to him. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So now the altar is consecrated. The sin of the priests is atoned for. Now the priests may ascend the hill of the Lord. And so Aaron and his sons lay their hands on the head of the ram for the burnt offering, the ascension offering. And Aaron kills the ram. And Moses threw its blood against the sides of the altar. Notice how Moses is serving as the priest, as it were, for this, for this ritual. And he burns the whole ram on the altar, an ascension offering with a pleasing aroma, an offering by fire to the Lord. And as we've seen in the first part of the, the, the book of Leviticus, the burnt offering or the ascension offering is where the whole animal ascends in the fire as a pleasing aroma to God. Now, since this is only focused on the consecration of the priests, the point here, the the people of Israel are simply watching this. They're not really participants in this yet. The priests are here saying to God, we are here to worship you. We are here to ascend to your holy place. And and that's where the animal will ascend in the fire as, as their sort of representative. And as we'll see, they have to do this for seven days just for themselves. It's only on the eighth day that they can enter their priestly service in mediating for others. So for now, they they must do this for seven days for themselves. Verses 22 to 32 then turn to the the ordination offering, the ram of ordination. Now, it's, it's in effect a peace offering, but it's not called a peace offering because the peace offering was where all Israel could partake of, of the animal. But in this case, only the priests partake. Because at this point, only the priests are the ones worshipping because they can't yet intercede for others. So only they are the ones who will partake of the ram of ordination. So it's called uh, the ram of ordination, which is in effect a peace offering for priests only. But then notice this curious ritual of putting some of the blood on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of Aaron and his sons. And then the rest of the blood gets thrown against the sides of the altar. What's going on with that? Watch the blood. What happened to the blood of the sin offering? The blood of the sin offering was put on the horns of the altar to purify the altar. The, the altar has four horns, that's the, the base of the four corners, and so that blood is put on the horns of the altar and then is poured out at the base of the altar to consecrate the altar and make atonement for it. Then the blood of the burnt offering is thrown against the side of the altar 
and the picture there being it all goes to God. And now the blood of the ordination offering is placed on Aaron and his sons and then the rest of it is thrown against the sides of the altar. So the blood of the sin offering consecrates the altar. The, the sin offering itself is burned outside the camp. The blood of the burnt offering is entirely given to God, just like the animal itself. The blood of the ordination offering consecrates the priests, just like they will partake of a, por- a portion of the ordination offering. So the, the symbolism is that it is then pretty straightforward as to what's going on. It's placed on Aaron's right ear that he might hear the word of the Lord, on his right thumb that he might do the word of the Lord in his priestly duties, and on his right big toes so that he might walk in the ways of the Lord. And then the rest of the blood is thrown against the altar, connecting Aaron and his sons with the altar. The same blood that is upon you is upon the altar. Or we could just read Hebrews 9. Hebrews 9, verse 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How did Christ enter into the heavenlies, into the heavenly holy of holies? By his own blood. The same blood that has consecrated the heavenly altar has consecrated you. The blood of Christ that, was purifi- that has purified the heavenly altar has purified you. Now you might wonder, why does the heavenly altar need purification? Isn't the heavenly altar already pure? How can I mean, it be made by God, made without hands? <laughs> it, it needs to be purified, consecrated, what? Well, if, if we think that way, we're misunderstanding what purification is all about. The purification of the altar does not mean there's anything inherently wrong with the altar. But if an altar is going to be used for sacrifice, if an altar is going to become a place where God and man can meet, then that altar needs to be consecrated, set apart, purified for that purpose. Hebrews 9.23 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The the heavenly things, the heavenly altar, the heavenly temple had to be purified with a better sacrifice than what we see here in Leviticus 8. The blood of Jesus. Sometimes when we talk about the blood of Christ, sometimes we just think about, oh, right, because he shed his blood on the cross. He died on the cross. I guess he shed his blood. But where does the blood of Christ become important in the ritual sense of where does, what, is, what is the blood ritual that matters? Hebrews is really clear. 
Jesus' blood is presented before his Father in the heavenly holy of holies as the consecration of the heavenly altar so that his, this, this, this is where Jesus' blood, because it, his death happened on earth. The presentation of his, but just, just think about the picture in the Old Testament sacrifices. All of these animals have died before their blood gets used for anything. The animal's death is not the, where the, where the, the sort of the importance of their blood comes in. Their blood is then used, why? To consecrate, purify the altar, and, and that is what Jesus does when he ascends to the right hand of the Father as Again, Hebrews 9.23, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things, namely the earthly things that Moses was talking about, to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And as verse 26 of Hebrews 9 goes on to say, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what Jesus is doing in his in his sacrifice, his, it's when he ascends to the right hand of God, that's when he brings his blood into the heavenly holy of holies to purify the heavenly altar so that, so that there might be a once-for-all sacrifice. Without that once-for-all, this is where Hebrews keeps making the point that if it's not for what Jesus does, then this has to keep going on over and over every day, every month, every year. And that was part of what all of these rituals that Moses was giving was telling us something's got to change. Because as long as this keeps going on, this is, this is, we're never going to actually get to God. If we're going to get to God, there has to be a once-for-all sacrifice. Well, the, the next part of the ordination offering in verse 25 follows the, the pattern of the peace offerings with the wave offering of unleavened bread, the fat, the liver, and the kidneys, and then the right thigh of the ram, all of which are burned in the fire. Now, ordinarily in the peace offering, the wave offering of the right thigh and, and the bread belongs to the priest. Usually for the peace offering, it's just the fat, the liver, and the kidneys that were burned in the fire. But in this case, for the, or, for the ordination, there's, I mean, in one sense, Moses is the priest, but he does not claim this as his portion. Part of this is because this is what God told them to do back in Exodus 29. But what is being communicated here is that by burning this, the, this, this portion that's supposed to be for the priest, by burning it in the fire, he asserts that God himself is the one who is consecrating Aaron as high priest. This was not Moses' decision. This is the will of the Lord. But, as verse 29 points out, Moses does play a part in this. He is the Lord's instrument in consecrating Aaron and his sons. And so Moses accepts the breast of the ram as his portion, again, as the Lord commanded Moses. Exactly what Exodus 29 had said. So the picture here is that, is that it's not just that Moses is consecrating his brother as, okay, you're, um, you're going to be that free. It's, no, God himself is the one who has said, I have chosen Aaron and so God himself is the one who consecrates Aaron with Moses as his instrument. And then Moses takes the anointing oil and blood from the altar and sprinkles it on Aaron and his garments and his sons and their garments. Now, any of you who have ever uh, made or even purchased a new piece of clothing that's just, it's just perfect, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, and 
just just picture this moment. Here comes here comes Moses. We got olive oil. Olive oil by itself is gonna it's, it's gonna stain. And now and now he's got blood. Oh my, this is not coming out. <laughs> These beautiful, costly, glorious garments that were made for Aaron and his sons are stained with blood and oil on their first day on the job. Not by accident, but on purpose. You can only imagine what Aholiab, the embroiderer, must have been thinking. Unless, if Aholiab understood the purpose of what he had made, any tears would have been tears of pure joy. He would not have seen stains from carelessness or misuse. He would have seen the blood from the altar. He would have seen the holy anointing oil. He would have seen by faith the death of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit woven together now into the very fabric of his own craftsmanship. Now, how much did he understand? Who knows? But that's the picture. The blood of Christ the anointing of the Holy Spirit now seeping in to the... I mean, this, this, is the this is what we sang about in Psalm 133 with the, the anointing oil coming down on Aaron's head, on his beard, and onto his garments. That this, this stain is not a stain in, the, in their eyes. This is, the, this is what brings about the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so Aaron and his sons now take the, the meat and boil it at the entrance of the tent of meeting where they will partake of the meat and the bread of the ordination offerings. We have peace with God. God has opened a way for humanity to enter his presence. He has brought us to his banqueting table. We are home. But even in this joyful moment of shalom where peace is coming to Israel, there's a warning that what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire. It's for one meal. When you've eaten your fill, don't take the leftovers home. Don't leave any for tomorrow. Burn the rest in fire because the Lord your God is holy. Do not treat the Lord's holy things as though they were common. The New Testament makes very clear that the Old Testament rituals are no longer in force, but the principles remain valuable for us. Do not treat the Lord's holy things, and especially his holy people, as common. And then Moses tells Aaron and his sons not to go out of the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days. Now, it may be that Moses is saying they need to do the same ritual each day for seven days. Verse 35 says, performing what the Lord has charged so that you do not die, for so I have been commanded. This ritual, after all, is the only thing that the Lord had commanded. But why does it take seven days to make atonement for Aaron and his sons. To put it simply, this creation has fallen short. God created the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And God had established the Sabbath day as the day for man to enter God's rest. All the other rhythms of life are based on natural patterns of creation. The year and its seasons are based on how the earth goes around the sun. The month and its phases are patterned after the moon. 
the day itself is based on the alternation of light and darkness. But the week? The seven-day week has no such parallel in the natural patterns of creation. The seven-day week is based on the pattern of the Creator Himself. God made us after His own image and likeness. And as He made all things in six days and rested on the seventh day, so He created us to be like Him, that we might work for six days and rest on the seventh. But, but this creation has fallen short. And there is no way back to the Garden of Eden. The cherub with the flaming sword guards the way. Indeed, the likeness of the cherubim stand guard at the holy place, preventing Aaron and his sons from entering into the most holy place. And so Aaron and his sons must now spend seven days as the representatives of Adam, waiting outside the most holy place. What are they waiting for? The eighth day. There must be a day beyond the seventh day. In the Ten Commandments, the, the seventh day reminds us of creation in Exodus 20. And the seventh day reminds us that we were slaves in Egypt in Deuteronomy 5. But that always shows how the seventh day points beyond itself to another day. And then we realize that God was doing this all through the scriptures. He gave Abraham a sign of circumcision to be performed on the eighth day. Because entrance into God's covenant is always an eighth day sort of thing. The priests can only enter their priestly service on the eighth day. The unclean will be cleansed and restored to the community on the eighth day. For that matter, the main days of worship and partaking of peace offerings will be the first or eighth days of the feast, whether the first day of Passover and then, or the day of Pentecost, which is seven sevens after Passover plus one, the fiftieth day, the ultimate eighth day. The Feast of Booths has two sacred assemblies, the first day and the eighth day. It's supposed to be a seven-day feast, but you assemble on the first day and the eighth day. The only way to ascend the hill of the Lord is when God begins a new creation, which is what God has done in Jesus and in you. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The new creation has come in Christ. Those who have been united to Christ by faith now share in that new reality. I mean, just, just think. A few months ago, Aaron had led a rebellion against God's law. He had made a golden calf in direct defiance against the Lord's order. And now he's being anointed as high priest so that he might lead a sinful people back to God. God does not require that you have a spotless record in order to come before Him. He cleanses, purifies, and consecrates you so that you might come to Him. It's not that you have to get your life in order in order to come to God. It's that you come to God and He promises that He will cleanse, renew, and remake you as He has promised. Let's pray. We come to you, our God, because we are not what we should be. And we see how things have not gone as they should, and so much is askew. And so we come to you because you have promised that, that you will make things right. And so we ask that you would have mercy upon us, that you would cleanse us and renew us and make us right. 
that by your grace you would you would purify us even as you have purified the heavenly altar even as you have through the death and resurrection of your son brought about the great redemption have mercy on us lord and now strengthen and renew us by the the grace of your son by the power of your spirit that we might walk in wisdom that we might live before you as those who have been made new through the death and resurrection of your Son. Have mercy on us, Lord, and, and help us in our several callings, that in our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, in each place where you put us, and in each, each situation where we find ourselves, help us to show forth your great love and mercy, that we might bear witness to the glory of, of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, have mercy on, on those who are straying and, and, and those who are, who are suffering and afflicted. Have mercy on those who, who, who grieve and mourn, those who, who are weak and helpless. Help us, Lord, to be your hands and feet, that as you have, you have consecrated us, that we might hear your word and do your word and walk in your ways, that we might be yours forever. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.